And Father, as we come to your word, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it is profitable, that it is beneficial to us for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And Father, we ask that you would now be with us as we study your word that by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, he would illuminate the text, that we would understand it, and not only understand it, but that we would be taught, that we, that we would be reproved by it, that we would be convicted, and that we would act accordingly by the power of the Spirit working within us, all for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 4. I realize that we have been in John chapter 4 for a very long time, uh, but this is such an important chapter. The, the main theme of this entire chapter is one of the main themes throughout John's book, and that is the necessity of witnessing, uh, evangelizing. This is all about evangelizing, and what we're going to have today, what we're going to see today, is, is continuing that same theme, the importance of evangelizing. You know, if you were to go to Amazon.com and look uh, only at the books, uh, but do a search for evangelism and looking only at the books, you would absolutely have your mind blown to see how many results would come up uh, just looking at the books, not the other resources, not the other materials on the subject of evangelism. Uh, I decided to, to take a look myself and I discovered this past week that there are at least 75 pages of results and each one of those pages has at least 20 things, 20 results that come up per page. Uh, now, what that tells me is that evangelism is difficult. Uh, anytime there's, a, there's a, a subject that has so much written on it, you can be sure that it, it's not an extremely simple thing uh, necessarily. You know, and, and so I'm quite sympathetic to the fact that evangelism is difficult, that it's, that it's uncomfortable, and that it's even extremely frustrating, and I think that's why all those books exist. But when you consider the vast, vast number of books available on the subject, one, thing's be one thing becomes really evident to me, and that is that we actually have a tendency to make it more complicated, to make it more frustrating than it needs to be, if we're being honest. Now, if you want to learn how to evangelize <laughs> books, that's just the start, right? I mean, you can find endless books. You can go to, to conferences that are focused exclusively on evangelism. You can go to, to seminars just on evangelism. You can attend Sunday school classes that focus just on evangelism. You can even go to, go to multiple seminary classes where you can learn more and more about evangelism. And you can do all these things you can fill your mind with all this information and still not feel like you are sufficiently equipped to do the work of evangelism. The fourth chapter of John's Gospel has shown us a lot of very important things and it's given us great insight into not only the necessity of evangelism, but the practice of evangelism. Now we, we might dismiss a little bit of it initially, that, that's our tendency, we're, we're always looking for reasons not to evangelize. We might dis dismiss part of it initially because, you know, this is Jesus we're talking about. He's the one who's been modeling evangelism for us. And I mean, who else could do it better than he does, right? I mean, he's God incarnate. Uh, we can't expect for one second to have the kind of results that he had, to, to do as well as he did with evangelism. But all those excuses that we might come up with, and there are millions of them, all those excuses that we might come up with for not evangelizing get burned down into a pile of ashes when the Samaritan woman that he was evangelizing goes and gathers scores of people from her region to come to Jesus. And she does it as a woman who, who hasn't read any books on the subject. She does it as a woman who hasn't gone to seminary, who, who's been a Christian for all of maybe five minutes, and not only that, but she's a woman who's known as an outcast and whose doctrine is surely st still very far from being theologically and biblically precise. 
But the moment that she believed, the moment that this Samaritan woman believed that Jesus is the Messiah, she immediately dropped everything, left everything behind to go and spread the good news. And what she shows us is that evangelism is not complicated. She shows us that evangelism isn't difficult. What is it that makes evangelism difficult for us? Ourselves. Ourselves. I mean, I suppose every person could could have their own reason, uh, but for many, I fear that the ultimate underlying reason either boils down to apathy or turning personal comfort into an idol. So the previous passage showed us how simple evangelism really is as this woman went back to Sychar and evangelized. If you can overcome apathy, and if you can overcome a stronger desire for comfort than, for, than you have for pleasing and obeying God, which should be our, our top priority, then you have everything that you need to be a successful evangelist. Because a successful evangelist isn't measured by the number of their converts. That's what we uh, tend to do, isn't it? You you tend to look at somebody like, I don't know, Billy Graham, and say, look at the millions of people that were converted under his ministry. He was a great evangelist. That's not what makes a great evangelist. Converts don't make a great evangelist. You know what makes a great evangelist? A willingness to go. A willingness to evangelize. A willingness to open our mouths and preach the gospel not the number of people who are converted as a result. As R.C. Sproul once said, God has entrusted to us the ministry of the word, not its results. So this passage that we come to today brings us back to the well where Jesus had this conversation with the Samaritan woman. The woman is now off in the village uh, encouraging her neighbors to go and to see Jesus and to find out for themselves that he is the Messiah. And Jesus and the disciples are now, they're back at the well. And while they're together, they have a conversation. And in this conversation, Jesus is going to share some very helpful insight with them about the purpose and the work of the church. And I say that it's helpful insight because the work to which the disciples were given and called is the same work that the church, that you and I are given and called to. And that is part of the central uh, emphasis of our passage today. We must come to see that the church's mission is the ministry of the Word. So there are three primary aspects of the church's mission which are brought forth and kind of fleshed out a little bit in our passage today. First, we're going to see the church's motivation. Secondly, we're going to see the need to reach the lost. And third, we're going to look at the means by which our mission is fulfilled. So first, we're going to look at the church's mission, uh, what drives the church's mission, what motivates the church's mission. That's what we're going to see in the first part of this passage. Let's look at John chapter 4, verses 31 to 34 together. We read this. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Jesus, of course. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. As the people from the village were responding to the Samaritan woman's pleas, her her, her urging that they would go and see Jesus, The disciples began urging Jesus to eat. The timing of that is kind of funny, isn't it? It's apparent that the drink that he had requested from the woman, by the way, was was never drawn from the well. The disciples went into into Sychar to get some food. They've come back with their food, and apparently they brought enough food for Jesus as well. And so they start urging him to eat. And Jesus responds to them in kind of a strange way because they're speaking physically and he responds to them with a spiritual answer. He says to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And it just flies right over their heads. They're they're looking at each other saying, what? 
he, he has food? Because once again, they're, they're not seeing the spiritual. They're not even thinking of the spiritual. They're thinking of what is physical. They're thinking on a purely physical, literal level. They think that he has to be talking about physical, literal food. So they start talking amongst themselves. Hey, did, did you bring food for him? I didn't bring, did you bring food for him? I, I, I don't know where he got it. They're, they're asking him, where, where did he get this food, right? But he's not saying that he has a stash of food, you know, tucked away in a pocket or, or, or something like that. No, he is speaking spiritually, which is made evident in what he says next. And if you thought that that last answer, his initial answer was confusing, you'll really struggle to understand what he says next, uh, to understand what he means when he says next, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now let's be brutally honest, just clear about this much. First of all, Jesus is speaking spiritually. He's not referring to literal physical food. And secondly, he wasn't saying that he doesn't need food. Not only is Jesus fully God, but he's also fully man. He felt pain the same way you and I feel pain. He felt thirst the same way that you and I feel thirst. And he needed food the same way that you and I need food. Uh, He knew what it was like to be hungry he needed physical nourishment, just like you and I do. So, so what does Jesus mean then when he says this? He means that while food is good, and while food is necessary, I mean, he, he did have meals. We have records of, of him having meals, of course. But he's saying that food is not the most important thing in the world. And in fact, it's not on his list of priorities. He's telling us that man should not live to eat, but that man should eat to live. And there's a huge difference between those two things. If, if we live to eat, we give food a higher priority than we should. But if we eat to live, then we eat so that we can fulfill a greater priority than eating. So Jesus is essentially saying, first of all, he's saying, I have something more important to do than eat right now. His purpose, his, his mission was what? To, to do the will of the Father, right? His mission was to do the work that the Father had sent him as the Messiah to do. Now you'll recall that Jesus actually fasted in the wilderness for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. And during that time, Satan tempted him, urging him to turn the stones into bread. So what did Jesus do when, when Satan gave him this temptation? What did he say? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he responds by saying to Satan, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And of course, Jesus is quoting scripture there. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The point of each passage is, is the same, and that is that physical nourishment is good. Yes, physical nourishment is necessary, but food has its place. The will of God is the ministry of the Word, and that must be what is primary. Food can wait. If you you come down to a choice between having something to eat and ministering to somebody who's lost, what's your priority? I mean, you can go 30 or 40 days without eating, but is that person going to last 30 or 40 days? Can, can evangelizing wait? That's the point that we're being drawn to here. Food can wait. Doing, doing the will of the Father, that's far more important. The opportunity to share the gospel with the lost, that's far more important. See, here's the tendency that all of us have in the flesh. We have this tendency to conform God's will to ours. We don't struggle so much to know what God's will is. His will is clearly revealed in his word. Rather, when a person struggles to figure out what God's will is, it can be that they're just trying to figure out how to interpret his word in a way that aligns with their own will. And that's certainly not always the case. Of course, it's not always the case. It's not even the case usually, necessarily, but it can be the case. And it sometimes is. That's the temptation that we face in the flesh to say, oh, this is really hard. Is there another way I can interpret this? But this was never a struggle for Jesus. 
This was never a struggle for Jesus. He came to do the will of the Father. And this is something that gets repeated throughout John's gospel. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 10, 25, he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. In John 17, 4, he prays to the Father, saying, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And of course, we know from Luke chapter 22, verse 42, that when Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and doing the will of the Father was so vital to him, it was so important to him that he would not, that he indeed could not give something else, anything else, even food, a higher priority than what God had assigned him to do. This is what Jesus came and lived to do above everything else. Of this passage, John, uh, James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He says, quote, I am convinced that we know little about our own natures until we come to the point of recognizing that naturally we prefer our will to God's and that even at best, even after God works with us, we often only desire to know and do his will half-heartedly, end quote. See, the application here, friends, has everything in the world to do with what drives us, what we've prioritized, what motivates us, what motivates everything that we do, both at a church level, you know, together, but also individually. I understand that life is difficult and that sometimes, sometimes it's all we can do to just get out of bed and make it through the day. We've all had times like that. But the point that we have to see here is that there is something more to life. There's so much more to life than just doing what you need to do to get through the day, than just doing what you need to do to survive. If we're going to grow in Christ's likeness, we have to grow in our understanding and our acceptance of the fact that just like God gave Jesus a work to accomplish, he's given us a work to accomplish as well. And if Jesus' primary motivation is to do the will of the Father, shouldn't that be our primary motivation as well? Living for God, living for His glory, that is to be our food. That is to be our priority in life in any given moment. That is foundational to the Christian life. To, to living our lives before God in a way that pleases Him. See, if you're apathetic toward God's will, it's guaranteed you're going to be living for the wrong things. And it is so easy to become apathetic to God's will. That's why Paul would write to the Corinthians, by the way. He said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he said, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for glory of God. Now, if we're being honest, we've never, ever done that perfectly. But Jesus never did that less than perfectly. He came to do the work of him who sent him. He came to do the work that the Father sent him to do, to fulfill and to uphold all the demands of the law of God on behalf of all who would repent and believe in Jesus. And he accomplished that work. Not my will, but yours be done. That was his motivation, was to align his will with the Father's and to do the will of the Father. See, friends, the purpose of life is not to just live until you're dead and gone. 
Obedience to the will of God is what must be primary for us. If you're not a Christian, and if you're wondering what the will of God is, if you've ever lived your, if you if you continue to live your life in a way that demonstrates that you really couldn't care less about what God's will might be, what He desires, what He wants His church, His people to do, you must know this: that God's will for you is that you would repent of your apathy and rebellion and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to his authority. But if you are a Christian, where do you start when it comes to understanding the will of God? I mean, we've, we've got everything that we need in God's word. His word is filled with statements about God's will for us. But specifically in the context of this passage, we should understand that sharing the gospel and thereby advancing the kingdom of God in the world is God's will for us. But it starts with what motivates us. It starts with what we prioritize. So let me ask you, do you desire to align your will with God's? Does that drive you? Does that motivate your decision making? Do you desire to live for God? Do you desire to obey Him, to serve Him, to live a life that's pleasing to Him? Is doing so your, your food, so to speak? I pray, friends, I pray that this would be primary for us, both as a group, corporately, and individually as well. It was primary for Jesus it was even primary for the Samaritan woman who had been a Christian for all of just a few minutes who forgot all about drawing water for herself once she was overcome with the urgency of reaching the lost. And if it's primary for Jesus, and as we see, it's primary for the Samaritan woman, it should also be primary for us as well. Our motivation is the first aspect of the church's mission that's modeled by Jesus here. The second aspect is the need the need that's everywhere, the need to reach out to the lost. Let's look at verse 35 together. Jesus continues saying, Do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Now, what is the harvest? What does that even mean? The New Testament commonly refers to the church's mission of reaching out to the lost as gathering a harvest, right? Think of what Jesus one time said to his disciples uh, in, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. He said, uh, we, read, we read there, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, obviously, Jesus is not teaching them about agriculture there. He was illustrating something with agriculture, but he wasn't teaching them how to be better farmers. He's talking to fishermen. So what was he illustrating? He was illustrating the need to reach out to the lost because the lost are abundant. Now the harvest was typically in the month of April. So if Jesus was saying that this is what they were saying at the time, that in four months comes the harvest, backing up four months from April, it would have been December when Jesus said this. The harvest gets planted in November, and in December, all that would have been showing out in the, the literal physical fields would have been you know, small green shoots uh, coming out of the soil of the fields. But Jesus says, look at the fields. They're white for harvest. See, when the harvest is white... It means it's ready. It means you get to work. Get what you can because that stuff doesn't stay just ripe forever. Eventually it dies and rots. When the harvest is white, it's ripe and ready. But the disciples, I mean, they hadn't been talking about agriculture. Jesus hadn't been talking about agriculture. So Jesus clearly wasn't giving them a lesson in agriculture here. 
So how does this translate into what Jesus is saying? He's basically saying, what are you waiting for? You don't have to wait. The harvest, God's harvest, is now. The time to gather in the harvest. The time to reach out to the lost. The time to see that they are everywhere and that they're ready is now. Now keep in mind that Jesus says this as the people from Sychar are coming to see him at the urging of the Samaritan woman. So as they're coming toward him, this is what he says. That's what he's referring to. They are the field, so to speak. These people are lost, and they will remain lost if they are left to their own preferences, if they are left to their own ideologies, if they are left to whatever they've been trusting in for their salvation up until this point. If someone does not share the gospel with them, if somebody does not preach the good news to them, they will remain forever lost. And friends, we must understand that this is central to the church's purpose. Not just our church, but, but the church, the, the universal church. Our primary purpose, of course, is, is to glorify God. But we glorify God by obeying Him. Is it possible to glorify God by not obeying Him? Of course not. So we glorify God by obeying Him. And one of the things that He has specifically instructed us to do is to preach the gospel. And this is true of every single generation. The lost are like a field that is filled with souls that are ripe for being saved. And death, death is like this combine that's just mowing through the field. And we don't know when it's coming. So there's an urgency to get out there and to harvest. There's an urgency to preach the gospel to the lost who will spend forever in hell if they are not reached. Now, we don't need to get bogged down here. It's possible to get really bogged down here in, in theological nuance, in, in theological discussions about the sovereignty of God in salvation. You know that I believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. Uh, Jesus believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation, but Jesus doesn't add a ton of nuance here uh, you know, by saying, well, you know, don't worry. God is sovereign over salvation, so if he has elected some of them uh, to be drawn to me, he'll take care of that. Don't worry. He'll take care of it somehow. He'll send somebody else to preach. So if you don't preach to them, don't worry. God's going to send somebody else. He doesn't say that. He doesn't add that kind of nuance. Jesus doesn't offer that kind of comfort he doesn't offer that kind of consolation to them, and therefore, you know what? He doesn't offer it to us either. We're not supposed to worry about that with evangelism. We don't, we don't try to make a distinction between, ah, who, who might be lost and who might be saved? Hmm, well, if we're going with man's wisdom, we're just going to fail. We'll be wrong. Will be completely wrong. As one commentator who also clearly understands and, and affirms the sovereignty of God and salvation, as this one commentator writes, he says, quote, the church must reap or the people will die. Reap or the world perishes, end quote. So let's think back to what we saw at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of chapter four, when we were told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. We've seen that, that one of the reasons he had to do it was because it was the will of the Father, right? He always did the will of the Father, so if he did it, it's because it was the will of the Father. And Jesus always, always never failed for one second to do the will of the Father. We've also seen another reason was for the sake of converting this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman at the well. And, and we may as well, by the way, uh, add for the sake of reaching all of these lost Samaritans that he's about to preach to. But there's yet another important reason that Jesus had to go through Samaria, and that is to give his disciples a lesson on the church's purpose and mission. And this was something of a rebuke for them, because the disciples, 
they were Jews. They, they knew, uh, they, they grew up knowing that the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews, that they were basically half-bred heretics. So this wasn't a field that they would have chosen. If you had given them the choice, if you had given the disciples the choice of who to reach out to and who not to reach out to, uh, they wouldn't have chosen the Samaritans. But here's the thing. What made, what's made clear in this passage is that who they reach out to and who they don't reach out to is not their call. Whose call is it? It's Jesus's. It's Jesus's call. How many times have you seen someone who looks like they're just a lost cause, just completely lost in the dark, and there's no way this person would even listen to me if I shared the gospel with them? You know, we might be tempted to think, you know, I don't have to share the gospel with this person or, or with that person because they clearly, they clearly have no interest in spiritual things. Guess what, friends? If it wasn't for the grace of God working in our lives, we wouldn't care about spiritual issues and spiritual things either. But we never know. There are two things that we just never know. Number one, we never know who the elect of God are. We never know uh, who uh, God has chosen to be saved, whose ears will be opened to hear and to believe. And number two, we never know how ready a person is to hear the gospel, what work God has already done in their lives to prepare them for the moment that somebody loves them and cares for them enough to share the gospel with them. Yes, yes, friends, God is sovereign over salvation. He has decreed the end from the beginning, and he has decreed all things that come to pass. He has not only ordained, however, that salvation will be accomplished, but he has also ordained how it will be accomplished, and that is by the preaching of the gospel. He ordains the ends and the means to the ends. And whom does he send to accomplish the means to this end? Could he have sent angels? Of course he could. Could he have himself just whispered in somebody's ear? He's God, of course he can. But what, he didn't, but what did he do? He didn't choose those things. What did he choose to do? He chose to send us. He sends his people, instructing us to preach the gospel and thus to gather the harvest. And friends, that is something that, that you and I should care really deeply about. I mean, this is, this is the great commission that we're talking about here. It's something that we should be passionate about because it's central to the church's calling and purpose. So our motivation is the first aspect of the church's mission that's modeled by Jesus here. The second aspect is the need to acknowledge and reach out to the lost. And third, we're going to see the means by which our mission is to be accomplished. Let's look at verses 36 to 42 together. Jesus continues in verse 36, saying, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior. Of the world. So if what we read in verse 35 was something of a rebuke when he said, look up, look up, 
Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white for harvest. If that was something of a rebuke, I think the words that we see here in verse 36 should actually be seen as a great encouragement, a great comfort. Because Jesus says that the one who reaps is already receiving wages. He's saying that there's, there's a reward of some sort for reaping. There's a reward of some sort for the person who participates in evangelism. Now, this isn't talking about a heavenly reward. He's not saying, oh, because you, because you converted this person or that person, well, you're going to have more rewards in heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is a reward that's received now. He's saying this is a, a reward that's received on this side of glory But the person who reaps isn't the only person who receives this reward. Jesus says that the one who sows and the one who reaps rejoice together. How many times have you shared the gospel with someone only to see no results? It's like talking to a wall, right? But somewhere down the line, somebody talks to that person. Somebody shares the gospel with that person. And they put their faith in Jesus. Is it any less joyful if somebody else leads that person to trust in Christ for salvation? It's no less joyful to reap than to sow. Because we can't take any credit for it for ourselves, for the results of our evangelism. We can't take any credit for that. Just like we can't take credit for our own salvation, we surely can't take credit for somebody else's salvation. But we know that we planted a seed with a person, and so we rejoice. We rejoice to see that person come to salvation. We rejoice to see the Lord pour out his grace on somebody we have sowed with or even somebody that we've just prayed for. We have labored for their soul. So all we can do is rejoice and give thanks to God when we see that somebody is saved. But when we remember when we see that, that sowing and reaping are actually two sides of the same coin, that they are complementary aspects of our mission, it's that much more encouraging for us. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. He wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So, friends, if if you don't get the results that you desire to see on the spot with your evangelistic efforts, hang on. Hang on. There's hope because God is the one who causes growth. That is, God is the one who is sovereign over salvation. God is the one who is sovereign over salvation. Now, God doesn't hope to cause the growth. That's not what Paul says. God doesn't try to cause the growth. That's not what Paul says. It says he causes growth, period. And thus, who gets the glory? God alone. That word alone is a really important word. God alone gets the glory. The person who sows, the person who reaps, Paul says they're nothing. God's the one who causes the growth. Jesus says that he was sending his disciples to to enter into the labor of others. Who went before them? Whose labor are they entering into? Well, maybe Jesus meant uh, John the Baptist, who had been in the region of Samaria, as we learned in John chapter 3, verse 23. Maybe Maybe he was talking about the Hebrew scriptures, Uh, that the Samaritans had held on to for all these generations, including uh, only the the writings of Moses. It could also be that he's referring to the work of the woman who has urged these people to come to Jesus, right? But we have to remember that even Jesus reaped fruit that was sown by another, uh, Andrew and John. They were first disciples of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist pointed them to Jesus, and that's when they started following Jesus. So John was the one who sowed. Jesus was the one who reaped in that case. But what an encouragement it is to read what we see in verse 39. We read, From that city, many, not some, not a few, 
Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word that the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. It is always, always such a joyful encouragement to see people come to Christ. But how much more joyful is it to see people saved after having rejected the salvation that came from the Jews? People who were rebels for generations. People whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents had lived as rebels and had rejected God all the days of their lives. How much more joyous is it to see that kind of person come to Jesus? This can only be attributed to a wondrous outpouring of God's grace. When we see all of these Samaritans coming to Jesus and receiving salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is actually, if we consider it, it's a sharp and, and kind of painful contrast with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. See, the Jewish leaders, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, they couldn't wait for him to leave. They couldn't wait for him to, to hit the road and, and get out of there again. And yet, what do we see here? The Samaritans beg and plead with Jesus to stay. And when we learn that he stayed two more days, even more of the Samaritans received salvation by believing in Jesus. And as far as we know, here's the kicker. As far as we know, all this happened, all these conversions of all these Samaritans happened without Jesus performing even one miracle. Contrast that with what happened in Jerusalem. Remember at the end of chapter 2? What was happening at the end of chapter 2? Jesus is performing all these miracles and these people have kind of a shallow, apathetic faith in Jesus. A faith that he will not accept. God is the one who gets the glory. Miracles will not convince somebody to believe. We can't appreciate the significance of all this unless we consider the heart of the woman who had just earlier that day been so sarcastic with Jesus, so dismissive of Jesus, but whose heart was changed in an instant. And the feelings of resentment that we can, we can be sure she felt towards so many in her village were replaced with feelings of urgency that they would believe and be saved. She didn't stop to think, oh, these people know what a, what a miserable and wretched sinner I am. I, you know, I'd better read up on some books. I'd better attend some seminars. Maybe I should go off to seminary and learn how to evangelize. No, she went with what she had she went with what she could. And she had everything that she needed. And that was faith in God, a testimony of her own redemption, and a desire to see her neighbors saved, and thus a willingness to speak to them and to urge them to go and see Jesus for themselves. These neighbors who had treated her so harshly would be with her in glory forever they would they would be at the throne of god beside her singing praises unto god forever how grateful must they have been for her god used her god used the lowliest of people the social outcast to do a great work with eternal ramifications and how glorious and how marvelous it is to see that the people come to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And they do it for themselves, not just because of what the woman told them. They say, we, we believe now, not just because of what you, you told us, but because we, we've seen for ourselves, this is the Savior of the world. We must see that the things that Jesus says to the disciples here in this passage apply to us today as well. The disciples were at risk of the very same things that you and I are at risk of, and that is specifically of not taking action, of not participating in the very purpose for which they had been called, of reaching out to the lost and preaching the gospel. 
See, it's easy to come up with excuses. There are millions of them, but not a single one of them is valid. The challenge starts for us by just examining ourselves. Can we declare with the Samaritan woman, can we declare with the Samaritans that we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Have you personally fled to Christ as your only hope for salvation, for forgiveness, for his obedience in upholding all the demands of the law and his substitutionary atonement, dying on the cross and bearing the wrath of God that we deserve, have you ever pled with God for these things to be credited to you by grace through faith in Christ? Because if you have, then you must know that Jesus has not only instructed the disciples to do this work of evangelism, but he has instructed you specifically, individually, to do the good work of evangelizing as well. Now friends, I know it's not easy work. I know it's not easy work. I know that it's really easy to do behind a pulpit. It's really easy to do it out on the streets. But there are no excuses. We must realize that ministry and evangelism... Go, go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. We have each other. It's a, it's a team effort. One reaps, one sows. So it's a team effort in that sense. And we know also that the Lord is with us and we know that he's sovereign over the results of our work. See, every generation faces a task that remains unfinished until Christ returns. And that task is to sow and to reap for Christ. Keith Green wrote a song that has it has just broken my heart more times than I can count. One of the lyrics goes like this. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? Friends, please. Please do not be lulled into complacency. Please do not be lulled into apathy regarding the salvation of of your friends, of your family members who don't know the Lord, of your neighbors. Do not be lulled into complacency about the mission of the church. Don't let the attitude that says, I can wait until, fill in the blank. Don't let that mentality creep in. As Paul said to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 9, he said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And if there's any work that causes us to grow weary, it's evangelism, isn't it? But we've got a promise here. This is a promise. The, the work to which the disciples were given and called is the same work to which you and I are called. And so may our faith in the God who gives us this promise, may, that, may our faith in this God who saved us, who pulled us out of darkness and placed us into his marvelous light to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. May that grip our hearts as it did the Samaritan woman's. And may we rejoice to see the fruit of our labors all for the glory of Jesus Christ who is and was and always will be the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you in the silence of our hearts how easy it is to make excuses. And we confess to you in the silence of our hearts that we are guilty of making excuses. We confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess that we have chosen comfort often over the importance of sharing the gospel. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the grace that covers every sin, the grace that covers every act of disobedience. And we pray that you would give us the courage to go forth boldly with the good news that you have entrusted us with the good news of reconciliation with you through Christ.
who upheld every law, everything that you required on our behalf, on behalf of all who would trust in him, and who died the death that we deserve to die so that we may live in your presence. Not on the basis of our goodness, not on the basis of our ability to to uphold the law, which would have been no basis at all, but purely, entirely on the basis of Christ's work on behalf of all he came to redeem. And so we pray, Lord, give give us courage to go into the world. We pray that you would go before us and prepare hearts and minds to hear the gospel, to hear the good news. We pray that you would send more laborers into the harvest, that we may rejoice in seeing many, many come to repent and believe in Christ and to become adopted into your family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.